Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. You want more time with your family, but you wanted more movement and you couldn't figure out how to do both? Here's that. You want to still work eight hours a day, but you want it to be better on your body? Here's how to do that. Oh, you have this other group that might be affected? Here's how to explain it so that they know it's good for them too. You're listening to Katie Bowman on Psychologist Off the Clock. We are four clinical psychologists here to bring you cutting-edge and science-based ideas from psychology to help you flourish in your relationships, work, and health. I'm Dr. Debbie Sorensen, practicing in Mile High, Denver, Colorado. I'm Dr. Diana Hill, practicing in Seaside, Santa Barbara, California. From coast to coast, I'm Dr. Yael Schoenbrenn, a Boston-based clinical psychologist and assistant professor at Brown University. And from sunny San Diego, I'm Dr. Jill Stoddard, director of the Center for Stress and Anxiety Management. We hope you take what you learn here to build a rich and meaningful life. Thank you for listening to Psychologist Off the Clock. Part biomechanist, part science communicator, and full-time mover, we have Katie Bowman on the show today. She has educated hundreds of thousands of people on the role movement plays in the body and in the world. She blends a scientific approach with straight talk about sensible whole life movement solutions. And she's written a number of books in the area, including Move Your DNA, Dynamic Aging, Movement Matters, Simple Steps to Foot Pain Relief, uh, Don't Just Sit There, and Whole Body Barefoot that have been critically acclaimed and translated worldwide. She's passionate about human movement outside of exercise and volunteers her time to support larger reintegration of movement into human lives. I'm so excited to have Katie Bowman on the show, and I'm excited to talk with you, Yael, about it because we have a history in movement together. We were uh, running partners in graduate school, and we used to run along the Bobo Link Trail in Boulder, Colorado, and that was one of the things I really looked forward to with you. Yeah, it was good to move our bodies because so much of the time we were sitting and doing work, sitting in front of our computers, studying and just, you know, kind of sedentary at the times that we weren't, you know, getting our stress release on the trails. Absolutely. And then just, I remember long conversations about our anxiety and stress too. So that kind of whole component of being in nature, talking with a friend and moving your body was such a multivitamin, I think for us during a really challenging time. And I also think you're alluding to something which is important to talk about and which Katie Bowman talks about is that a lot of the times we pull out an hour or half an hour of our lives to exercise and we think that we've done our movement, but exercise is just one component of a much bigger frame of movement. Just like meditation is one component within a bigger uh, frame of something like mindfulness. And just like you can practice mindfulness in your daily life, you don't have to sit on a cushion to be mindful. You don't have to exercise to move, which is sort of interesting. Uh, and, and that, yes, there's a body of research out there right now on all of both the health benefits, but really the mental health benefits of exercise. We know that uh, in, in terms of anxiety and depression and overall well-being, longevity. But there's also significant mental health benefits to moving our bodies throughout the day. 
What was your reaction to the episode, Yao? I think it's really eye-opening. I think that idea that you can incorporate movement throughout your day in small to large ways is is really kind of a mind shift and such um, it's so antithetical to our current culture where it's kind of like you move when you exercise. But so many parts of our culture are appealing to our desire to kind of sit still and um, have things delivered to us. And I was just kind of reminded of that this morning when I went on an errand and I was going to a store that had just relocated and and I had parked at the wrong lo- at the old location, and I had this sort of moment where I was thinking about the Katie Bowman episode, and I thought I could get back in my car and drive to be closer, or I could just walk there. And it's so uncommon in our culture to think like, oh, well, why don't I just walk there? Because everything is created in this way that makes it easier for us not to move. Everything from like your electric mixer that whips your whipped cream for you. And I remember my grandmother used to sit there and whip cream. And now I'm trying to do that more because I don't want to outsource my movement, mainly because I don't move in so much of my life. I'm the therapist that sits for a lot of my day and looking at how could I build movement into what appears to be a sedentary lifestyle for the health of both my body, but also really my mental health. I think that listeners, she really takes you outside of the box here. So even if you're driving in a car right now, there's ways that you could move your body more. So something that Katie talks about in some of her books and podcasts is even you can move your eyes in different ways than we usually move our eyes. So our eyes are usually very close up to things in our modern environment, but evolutionarily our eyes would be used to look way out on the horizon and look in many different directions, right? As we're hunting and gathering. So you can even do that as you drive, you can look out further on the horizon or look to the sides, move your eyes around and you're cultivating more nutritious movement for your eyes for the dilation contraction. You can also move your body internally with your breath. So you can move your breath into your belly, into your lower belly, and to take more diaphragmatic breaths, or you can move your breath into your chest and your sides, and even just stretching out some of the intercostal muscles inside of your core, even if you're just sitting and driving. So I really like how Katie's approach is all about movement for all bodies, which she says is all bodies are welcome. So if you have an injury or if you have an aging body or you have a body with a disability, in that all of these cases, movement can be integrated into your life and this type of nutritious movement, that it's not just about able-bodied people getting to a gym. That's not the picture of what Katie Bowman offers. And really, I think what makes it so accessible and lovely for many. Just And just to dovetail on that, I was just as you were speaking, thinking about folks who deal with chronic pain. And even for those individuals, rather than let the pain stop movement, which can actually over time perpetuate the pain and worsen it, it's interesting to think about ways that you can incorporate movement that doesn't up the pain too much, but instead helps you to kind of find movement that is more comfortable. So take a listen to Katie Bowman. I hope that she will help all of us move a bit more and and please join us in moving throughout this episode in whatever way is best for your body. Welcome Katie Bowman. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So the last time I saw you, we were uh, carrying buckets of mulch at Mm Coco Farms in Ojai to deliver to the fruit trees there. And when I told my co-host Debbie about what we were doing, she said, you know, while you're doing that, are you paying someone to do that at your house? <laughs> right. That's right. And, and it, I think this taps into this whole concept of movement and 
outsourcing our movement, obviously, but also the importance of movement. So maybe we can just start with why, why did you have us on a retreat uh, mulch Poco Farms fruit trees? Well, the Poco Farms retreat that you attended is part of a series of retreats based on my book, Movement Matters. So they're all Movement Matters retreats. There's a lot of things that we all consume on a regular basis that at one point we used to participate in the end product, but now we don't really participate in anything related to the product outside of maybe buying it and consuming it. So there's, there's a few things that many people consume every day, coffee, alcohol, shoes, essential oils, food. And I thought it would be really fun to show individuals who love certain items the movements that go into those items. Because if people are attracted to my work, they're attracted to the idea of movement. They are maybe just recently aware that their life doesn't have that much movement into the into it. And so the solution is always, hey, get more exercise where I'm trying to say the things that you love and consume on a regular basis hold the very movements that also nourish your body. And so I thought it would be fun to set up two-day experiences where where those who are interested in alcohol could do more than drink it. They could go to a place and harvest the fruits for it. They could see the people who's made it their lives work to make it. They can learn some of the nerdy facts behind it, but mostly they could embody it. They could embody, if only briefly, if only a small element of that thing. We were doing one on regenerative ranching, this idea of where does food come from? What do more sustainable food models look like? Who does the work for that? Um, so you just you get to embody something that you consume. You can embody the movements that go with it, and thus you participate in the thing that you love even more. Yeah. So movement matters talks a lot about movement ecology, and it feels like we need to rewind a little bit to an earlier book, which is the Move Your DNA book. You know, you've written a number of books, but in Move Your DNA. You write a lot about uh, how our ailments that we have are diseases of behavior or diseases of captivity, mm-hmm. and that our solution to them isn't always really getting to the to the to the root of, of the issue, and that really we need more nutritious movement. So, can you talk a bit about diseases of behavior and and then what is nutritious movement and why is that helpful? All right. So, move your DNA introduced this idea that movement for all of humanity up into a very short period of time has been ubiquitous for humans. Humans have always had to move for all the things that they needed. They moved in complex ways. They had a diversity of movement, but there was definitely themes. And those themes of movement you'll still see in modern hunter-gatherers who live um, a lifestyle that's not exact to, but much more similar to historical humans compared to this outlying time that we are in, which is very sedentary. So Movement Matters introduces this idea that movement is a need. And I picked the term nutritious to explain movement for a couple of reasons. One, it's a more clinical or academic application, is I do believe it's actually a nutrient and will be classified as a nutrient in the future because it meets those classification requirements. The Other reason, though, I like to use it is because I would say that most humans listening to this podcast 
have been presented with a nutritional model that makes sense. Like we have an understanding that if there's a particular nutrient missing, a dietary nutrient missing, there are very predictable symptoms that you can associate with a lack of those dietary nutrients. It took a very long time to collect that list of nutrients. We all got it in second grade, this idea. But as it was being developed, it was a very controversial, complex battle to the scientists of the time. It's easy for us to understand nutrition because, like I said, it's part of the culture now. But movement is not. So we are a sedentary culture, and I think that's a very important theme for those who use research and data to understand that the cultural perspective is a sedentary one. And so a lot of our questions that we set up and research that we do is always informed by the sedentary perspective. So Move Your DNA was just calling out to say, we're not only exercise deficient, we've lost all of the movement as a group of people. Yes. So classic example is you've been on a five-hour flight, you get off the flight, and there's a moving walkway available. Sure. Just step on that moving walkway and stand. Yeah. You know, the Denver International Airport is the, the worst with the moving walkways. It's a great airport for walking because it's a nice long distance. Mm-hmm. But, the, but we're sedentary and we will always opt towards the less uh, effortful option. And there's evolutionary reasons for that. Sure. A lot of your work draws from evolution science as well in terms of understanding how we're meant to move in our lives. Can you talk a little bit about that? Well, it's essentially mismatch theory. So for anyone who's familiar with evolutionary biology, it's this idea that the inputs that went into shape the human body as it is now are still those necessary inputs that that there was so much complex movement going on. A lot of our systems still, a lot of our physiological mechanisms depend on that movement. And so those diseases of convenience. They've also been labeled as diseases of affluence. Sometimes I say captivity for reasons that are expanded upon and move your DNA, but it's this idea that you don't move very much outside of um, a box and that there's very many uh, casts is the word that I use in move your DNA. We're operating in so many physical and cultural casts that we keep each other from moving. And there's a predictable set of symptoms that come from sedentarism. It's just, we're just now starting to dial in that we already understand Mm -hmm. movement as nutrition. No one's just ever used that language before, but if you can use that language and you start to go like, oh, there's macronutrient categories of movement, right? We have like strength, stretch, cardio, like we've already kind of segmented that everyone needs not just movement, but some of these three. And if you ever go to a physiotherapist, they'll tell you that there's actually a small set of muscles that you're not using. So it's much more of the micronutrient deficiency. Mm -hmm. And so I'm just trying to lay over the dietary framework so that you can see like, oh, I understand that I'm either completely void of movement calories, or maybe I do a lot of fitness or exercise but it's all very the same thing. So it's just the same food over and over again. So even though I'm exercising one or two hours a day, which is still, which we can talk about later, very low total movement, total calories, we are tending to consume one or two modes of exercise, which would be like one or two foods. And as nutritious as the foods we may pick, 
a nutritious diet isn't made up of kale or potatoes. There is a balance of macro and micronutrients and the same goes for movement. Yes. So movement matters as you've described, Mm -hmm. and then we need more movement and we need a variety Mm -hmm. of movement. And that a lot of the casts that you talk about actually limit limit those two things. They, they both limit the amount of movement that we're engaging in and the, the variety of the movement. Can you give some examples of casts and then some examples of what the consequence of those casts are? Well, the easiest, the easiest cast to see are those rigid structures that we participate in every day. Your chair is a big cast. So when we are talking about sitting less, what we have is an entire culture, which means our mindset is that we should be sitting. Our children should definitely be, if they're good, sitting. There's even a good way to sit. We have invested a ton of millions of dollars into finding out the best possible physical way to sit. Shoes, our bodies are put into shoes every day. And so that's a, that's a cast, yes, on the foot itself, but also the whole body. We opt for often elevated shoes. So our feet are kind of pointing downhill all the time. And fashion is one of those things that's culturally promoted. And so we don't really think of it as a movement choice. It's just a shoe, even though many people would say, well, I can't walk in these. Like I I would have to change my shoes if I were to actually have to walk in them. So we are already kind of tuned into how these things affect us. Uh, Inside, um, with all the new research on the benefits of nature, not only for children, but for what I call goldeners or in the gerontology sector. Um, And then of course, just every person being enhanced by more time outside. You can think of then anything that keeps you from being outside as a cast. So the walls of your house. Sidewalks are casts. Sidewalks are casts, flat and level. The ground that we walk on, we've kind of scraped off any sort of lump or bump Mm -hmm. off of our environment. Yeah. And then what, what I'm interested in again is that movement matters perspective, which is the justification that we use to do it and that it's better, safer, but how we keep coming to the conclusion, it's more efficient. I work with designing spaces for parks and apartment buildings, and the architects are trained to kind of minimize the amount of movement it takes right. to move from point A to point B because that's better. And then at the same time, those same people are struggling to figure out where to put the movement in now that we've figuratively and oftentimes literally destroyed the movement potential of a space. So you drive the three miles to your gym, then to run the three miles Mm -hmm. on the treadmill. Right. And that there's a lot of loss, loss in doing that. And maybe even some consequences to doing that sort of as you described junk, junk food movement. And I think the treadmill is a good example. And maybe we can dive more into the difference between exercise and movement. Right. Well, junk food movement was an attempt at continuing that analogy. So you have to kind of first imagine, we already know, but many people have this understanding that there's more nutritionally dense food. And so usually what gets labeled junk food still has a high volume of nutrients in the terms of calories, but the diversity or the the amount of any other nutrient besides calories in that unit of food. I always use Snickers. Obviously I'm not endorsed by Snickers because I always use them as an example to say, like if you took a Snickers bar, a high level of the caloric nutrient, so you're not going to starve. And so 
that bit of food, any bit of food can save anyone from starvation. But as you get more nuanced in terms of evaluating, I have a fixed amount of calories that I'm going to eat. I'm going to shoot for making the most nutrient dense meal. Then you start to realize that maybe a lot of the foods that we're eating or the movements that we're eating, if you're going to say, meet some things like the minutes that you moved, but maybe it doesn't have the micronutrient or even macronutrient profile that for that same volume of movement, 30 or 60 minutes, could have been more movement nutrient dense. So that's what I mean by a junk food movement. So one example of that was the workshop that you did. You know, you paid to come carry mulch. And that's not the only thing we did. But this idea of paying to, to do farm labor essentially seems sort of ridiculous until you realize that many people go to classes to carry nothing, to pretend right. carry it around in a room, right. lift weights. You know, you're not actually carrying, you're not accomplishing anything else. The density, the nutrient density was only the movements and the motions of your arms. But if you did that exact same workout in a field, then you have the additional nutrient of being outside. If you do that exact same workout, but you swap one of the weights for a bucket of mulch, now not only did you lift and you were with others and you were outside, you actually accomplished or participated in another system outside your exercise class. And so it's a way of looking at movement to say, because we have gotten rid of all the movement from living, where it fit in nicely and abundantly, and diversely, we are now creating technologies and parsing our lives even further to try to attempt to get all the macro and micronutrients of movement that we used to found that we used to find through living. So, so it's weird. Like on one hand, it seems totally ridiculous to be doing it, but it's usually the cultural perspective where carrying a 50 pound weight or dragging a heavy thing to go across a room or to go nowhere makes perfect sense. But actually doing physical labor for an end goal seems like the ridiculous Mm -hmm. choice. And so that's where we are as a culture. And that bias right there keeps us constantly losing movement. Like our sedentarism is increasing. Despite the billions of dollars, it's increasing. It's like those grip, those grip strength things that you see people holding that they squeeze together back and forth oh, to strengthen sure. their grip. And there's another way to do that, which is get a nut and yeah. put it between some nutcrackers right. and you'll strengthen your grip and you'll yeah. get a nut out of it. That's right. So a lot of what you do is integrating movement back into our lives, which is different than exercise, has a different purpose than exercise. And actually it becomes a whole lifestyle. You changed not only my life, but our whole family's life. And when people come to our home, they notice a few things about it. When people come to my office, they notice a few things about it. So some of the things that we changed were putting cushions around a low table to sit on the floor. Some of the things we changed were but none of our rooms have any anything in front of any screen. It's always an open space mm-hmm. in front of a screen. We have a hanging trapeze in our uh, children's playroom and hanging rings to hang from. Now, the reason why we did that is because now we get to do our yoga class while we're getting up and down from the floor every day. I'm doing a lunge every time I get up or I'm doing a squat or I'm doing these very nutritious movements. It's, it's a whole mind shift in terms of what you're asking people to do. Can you talk more about that in terms of 
what does nutritionist movement look like in the course of someone's day? Well, I guess that's, that's where we circle back to movement ecology, which you talked about in the beginning and how it relates to nutritious movement. So as long as our pursuance of movement is in the form of exercise and really only getting done the movements by themselves, it's really hard to accomplish anything else. So the shift is you can definitely go and take the full hour class. And that's great. You don't necessarily have to scrap what you're doing. It's just that almost every health practitioner is recognizing that folks need to move more for whatever it is that they're being seen for. More movement is being needed. And where is it supposed to fit in? Because if one yoga class was great, if four is supposed to be better, it's not really feasible for anyone else to do. So the idea is that you put your movements back into your life in whatever way you can do so that you see small bits of movement peppered throughout the day. So you would see not only the 10 moves that you might get in a stretch class um, in that one hour, you're going to see them all maybe triple in volume because maybe you're sitting on the floor to have your breakfast meal. Or maybe if you have a little bit of computer work, instead of sitting in the cast, which is your same desk workup structure that you have, you kind of create a dynamic workstation where you have a laptop that you can put on the floor, or maybe you can stand, maybe you have a ball to sit on where you can kind of wiggle around. If you have reading time, the idea that you don't have to sit in the same chair in the same position that if you have stretches that you love, when most people go and they stretch or move their body, it feels amazing. It It's not just the hips that feel amazing. There's a parasympathetic often response of just calming down when you move yourself, especially when you're under move. So the idea that you can do that and read your book at the same time, like I'll often swap out a minute of reading in a chair for a minute of reading with my legs up the wall or something like that. And part of this has to do when you're talking about variety, it has to do with loads and the, the repetitive loading that we're doing on our body that has consequences to our bodies over a long period of time. So if I'm sitting in my chair with a client, I I have somewhere four, six, seven hours of sitting a day with the client. Yeah. Yeah. But what's interesting is that when I transition to sitting on the floor, I'm constantly shifting, adjusting, moving my legs in different positions. And then I'm also in my 50 minute session, getting up at those 50 minutes and walking to my mailbox and back. Right. I tracked it this morning. I just did three walks to the mailbox and back and I walked a mile in seeing four clients. So I saw four, four hours of people, but I walked a mile while seeing four hours of people. So that's the, the kind of changing the loads. Can you talk a little bit about loads and, and the consequences on our body of how we're loading it right now? Well, uh- that's that's to the cellular part of Move Your DNA. What Move Your DNA does, in addition to introduce us maybe gently to the idea that we live in a sedentary culture, is to talk about why sedentarism matters to the physical structures. The problem with understanding exercise to be movement, which it is not, it is a type of movement, but it is not the only type of movement, is that exercise is often talked about and understood to be a whole body state. You are either exercising or you are not. If you're an exerciser, then you're active. And if you're not an exerciser, you're sedentary. So we've got these really broad categories. And movement has, is almost always talked about in the whole body perspective. So maybe you b- ride your bicycle every single day, and that's good for some of your systems. But for 
the tissues that would require weight bearing for not only their health, but also to be able to carry your weight in the future, cycling wouldn't be the most nutritious exercise to do full stop because it's not nourishing certain parts of you in particular ways that allow your whole person to move forward with all the potential skills. So the idea of loads is that movement is happening on a cellular level and that every movement loads every one of your cells uniquely. And if cells and cellular movement seems too overwhelming, you can certainly use a smaller model or maybe it's a larger model, which would be the idea of okay, well, I know that if I'm sitting in a recumbent bicycle with my arms hanging down by my side and just pedal and pedal and pedal, I still need to do some exercise for my arms because even though my whole body pedaled the recumbent bicycle, my arms didn't do very much. So now I'm going to have to cross train. So cross training is the application of the fact that we do know that there's a part by part benefit to movement. And if you only consume vitamin swimming, you're not necessarily going to be prepped for things like weight bearing or carrying heavier loads so that you need to diversify the movement. But the rationale for all those choices is this concept of load. The load, the idea that you're adapting in different places to every movement that you do. So you want a very diverse, you want a rainbow of movements, just like you want to eat the rainbow dietarily, dietarily, nutritionally speaking, same for movement. You want to be moving all of your parts because, well, systemic adaptations can make you better. So to those part by part adaptations or adjustments or improvements to movement. I think it's a metaphor that I learned from you that I use a lot with clients is the metaphor of the couch on the carpet. Is this your metaphor? Oh yeah. From yeah. Di- like, uh, yeah, yeah. The diastasis recti. So the yeah. couch sitting on the carpet for three years, if you lift up the couch, what are you going to see? The couch imprint, right? Mm-hmm. Of the legs. Versus if you lift up the couch every 10 minutes and move it to a different spot for three years, what are you going to see? Right. A nice carpet. And right. that's sort of that just stuck with me because I envisioned my life sitting in a chair as the therapist <laughs> for 20 years. <laughs> Did you start moving your chair and, around the office just a and, little bit? Yeah. And then my body starts to look like a chair. And, mm-hmm. and you know, my, when we were going to um, purchase a toilet for a, a bathroom that we had to redo, they had the, the only option was the comfort toilet, which is the toilet that has a really high height. We couldn't get the lower toilet because... No. We that's just out of service now, yep. and we actually fought to get the last one that was on <laughs> that was left. That's the lower toilet because as humans we can't get down to that low level anymore. It, and again, the the toilet is a cast. But one of the reasons the next generation won't be able to is because culturally we've all made we've all decided without realizing it to go to the higher toilet, which means now the next kids they'll never be able to get down there. And you can see that shift in the yeah. shape of that we've lived in. It's just a slow, steady trickle of movement loss. And the downstream effect of that is oh, things yeah. like your intestines not being able to eliminate the downstream okay. effect of, you know, back pain being one of the number right. one reasons why people go to their general practitioner. Yeah. And then there's the whole downstream effect in terms of, uh, just movement in our own mental health that I think you may be interested in how I use your concepts actually in psychology. Mm -hmm. The mind actually works in a very similar way. There's psychological problems associated with not moving as much, but there's also a lot of psychological problems associated with seeking comfort. Mm -hmm. 
So something like an anxiety disorder has a lot of avoidance behavior because I'm Mm -hmm. fearful of this thing. And so I don't do that thing because it's uncomfortable and you repeatedly don't do that thing. And then your life gets narrow, 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 and smaller. And someone's going to call me up and say, I can't leave my house. Can you come do a session with me under my door? Right. Right. And it's the same idea that our tendency to find comfort and avoid discomfort, uh, emotional avoidance is at the source of a lot of uh, pretty much any disorder you can think of. Right. right? So there's a lot of overlap. And so I use actually your principles to, Mm, as metaphors of what what happens with the body is the same thing when what happens in our mind. We go down the same ruts over and over again and we don't go out into the wilderness and explore. And then we're also taught to, to follow certain ruts, right? Right. I'd love to talk about the three macronutrients of movement that you recommend, because I think it'll be helpful sure. for, for listeners to walk through some of these categories of nutritious movement. And the three categories that you talk about are squatting, walking, and hanging. Mm-hmm. So let's start with squatting uh, as a macronutrient. Can you describe it and, and give an example of, of how we could do it and why we need to be squatting more? Well, Squatting, I think of as a biomechanist, I tend to reduce everything down to the geometries that it, that your body uses and the loads that are created during a particular category of movement. So squatting is definitely a category of movement because it encompasses really anytime you take your whole person closer to the floor and bring them up away from the floor. There's a lot of different shapes that you can make. While you do that, sitting is essentially a squat. It's just the distance that you travel over is very small because you stop your squat as soon as your butt hits the seat and you only rise from the height of the seat up. So if everyone wanted to squat a little bit more, all they would have to do is swap the chair that they tend to sit in for a chair that's slightly lower. Mm-hmm. And so what that gets you is a little more work. And, you, and the first time you go to that lower seat, you'll almost plot back and then you'll tune in, you'll embody like, oh, I stop using my body at say 90 degrees. But when I have to travel down those six extra degrees, I've never used my glutes and my hamstrings, even carried my weight over my joints to that structure. And then when you go up, same thing, you'll realize it's hard to come up from one or two inches differently than where you spend most of your time, which is usually not moving and sitting in a chair while you're not moving. Mm-hmm. So squatting is one of those that uses your knee joints fully. It uses your hip joints fully. It uses a lot of your ankle joint. It moves your calves, your quadriceps, your hamstrings, your glutes, your sacrum, your pelvic floor, your pelvis, your spine. It's it's a whole. It's a very large whole body motion. And if you've ever traveled, um, especially to cultures where their squatting practices are intact, and you'll see people just sitting in very low, full squats for an hour, completely comfortable. It looks so much different than what our bodies do comfortly. You can, you can see that here in the United States. You just need to go to preschool for two hours. And And so we start off squatting a lot. And I had this uh, hypothesis that squatting reduces with age because I would um, squatting and sitting on the floor because I would notice when, when I would bring people into my home, if you were in like your twenties, you'd be willing to sit on the floor. You wouldn't complain about it. You right. may even prefer it. Well, if you bring a five-year-old into the home, they don't even look at the furniture. They just want right. to be on the floor. Bring someone in their twenties. They're, they're good. Thirties, eh, maybe forties, fifties, sixties, all of a sudden it becomes like the search for what is wrong with this place. Right. Where That's can right. I sit? What am I going to do? Right. But there was a, there was an outlier 
And this is what broke my hypothesis that it's not about age because the outlier was 70 years old. She came into our home. She's my mother-in-law sat on the floor. No problem. Yeah. And the reason why is because she was a preschool teacher and director for so many years, her environment shaped her behavior. Of course, she's on the floor. She's getting up off the floor all day long. And that was such a wake up call because so much of what I, what I think about is that our behavior is so contextual. Our environment shapes our behavior and us being able to squat has everything to do with what toilet we're buying, you know? And, and what chairs? Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, if everyone just calculated their chair to butt ratio of your home, you're going to see that in most homes, you know, there's like four or five butts that live in an yeah. area and you'll find 30 to 40 actual places to rest. Yeah. And so your, your environment definitely does. It's your, your physical environment shapes your mechanical habits yes. in that environment. And I think it's very important to separate for research age from length of habit, because there is a difference between the mechanisms of the two. And so if you go to cultures that are squatting cultures that are non-sedentary cultures, you will see that movement isn't um, waning Mm -mm. any in the older population because your survival depends on it. It's just that what you see is people who haven't sat on the floor or not sat in a chair for a longer period of time, they, they're not as easy to adapt. You know, you, so you're just, you, it's a slow loss of your, I, it's a narrowing of your environment options to yeah. chair, yeah. And but, but you squat, can change it. You can change it squat for two hours a week in yoga class. is not going to change the pattern necessarily. It's doing the squat on the regular basis. So sure. I think about my future. I'm going to be a grandma fingers crossed. Like my mother-in-law, I want to get on the floor with my kids, my grandkids, like my mother-in-law, she can get on the floor and play with them. And it's, it's beautiful. But we start doing when we become parents, we go sit on the bench and we observe our kids on the playground instead of crossing the bars with them, which is another thing that you taught me to do, which Mm -hmm. is go cross the bars with your kids. Mm -hmm. And it lends to the next macronutrient component of movement, which is hanging. Hanging. Yeah. And that's another one. So it's just a, it's a big hand, wrist, elbow, shoulder, rib cage, abdominal strength in a short amount of time. So I'm always trying to help people figure out how do I pick where to direct my movement practice? I'm like, well, if you can work on squatting and hanging and walking, you're going to be hitting so many whole body diversity. Plus they're all fun. Plus they all open up experience. So hanging, hanging definitely opens up the feeling of joy and youthfulness. And I have so many letters from people in their 50s and 60s, 70s and 80s who are like, I remember when I was a kid, I wasn't able to hang. So the idea that now for the, I just crossed the monkey bars. I get so many social media. I just crossed the monkey bars for the first time and I never could do it as a kid and I can do it now. And that's, that's tremendous about life experience. You know, it's like, it transcends shoulder joints and fitness levels. It's about a feeling of self-efficacy and strength and confidence. Um, so I'm, I'm always excited to see recommendations that stem from maybe initially you dip your toe in cause you want, you know, your elbow to stop hurting or you want, you know, stronger arms to parlay into something. And, and it doesn't have to be hard, you know, like oh, the hanging protocol that we have starts with find a vertical pole, find a stop sign pole, go to your doorway, 
hold on to it and lean away from it. So, so it's most folks can hold themselves up by leaning away from the thing that they're holding on. It's not, your arms aren't even overhead. You're not even weight feeder still on the ground, but you just start to feel what your weight feels like on your hands. And then you just slowly, but steadily get your arms up overhead, hold your hands there, keep your feet on the ground, but just put some of your weight gingerly on there. Maybe wiggle around a little bit and you notice that your hands might have to get stronger. Your skin on your hands might need to toughen up a little bit. And you, there are some form recommendations, you know, watch what your shoulders are doing and what your ribs are doing. But if you just stick to it, eventually you pick one foot up and then you pick the other foot up and you're hanging, then can you swing a little bit? And then what happens if you put one hand on one monkey bar in front of you and one hand behind you and hang with your arms in that way and then switch it and try it that way and just slowly, but surely it comes. Yeah. If we weren't designed to hang, then we wouldn't have monkey bars on the playground. Like our bodies are are designed. Kids have, I think there's this like urge to hang. And, and I know yeah. this because when my oldest was three, um, we put up a pull-up bar. It was the first thing we did was put up a pull-up bar in our, in our doorway because he kept on hanging from the towel rack and pulling yeah. it off the wall. But somehow we, we, again, like squatting our environment, nothing in our environment is over our heads anymore. We don't pick fruit. We don't, you know, climb trees. We don't do that kind of behavior. So we lose that, um, that mobility over time. And there's consequences physically, but also you're saying consequences emotionally to not play in that way. Well, and again, I, I, I have two kids and I, I got a little Diane Fossey on my own kids and that I recorded a lot of their early learning behaviors and how they would function in environments. And there's a lot of work now on um, the effects of children and low ri- too much low risk play, no more risky play, no more big play, challenging play. And then, you know, how that affects their, not only their, not only their physical robusticity, but things like grit things that you're seeing come up in education. There's an ecology here to where mm-hmm. movement fits in, in the conversation around how we work with others and experience environments. And the physical piece is, if we go back to the mismatch theory, perhaps the most mismatched out of all of the environments right now. It's also one of the ways in which we bond as humans and bond with our children can be through movement. And there's so much of that instinct to tell your kid to go run around outside and then sure. sit inside and, and do work. You really changed our paradigm. I give my kids a lot more movement tasks. Mm-hmm. When they were toddlers, I'd give them a rock and nuts and be like, yeah. have fun. That's your snack. Right. Mm-hmm. And Or have them do foraging. The other day, I was actually going down our lane and I saw these broken branches from this persimmon tree. And I asked my son about it. And he was like, well, I had to climb up in the tree because the ones in the center are way better because they're not picked by the birds. That's right. Yes, that's right. You got to get out and in because the birds get the outside. But I wouldn't think about that, this idea of you're hungry for a snack, go find some food. That's right. And you really changed that also that exercise paradigm of that we exercise now to burn off food as opposed to movement to get food. That's right. And also I just, when I'm hearing you tell that story, the body of work that I went through is really informed by where I was at the time. So yeah. move your DNA and movement matters really was informed by going from a biomechanist without any kids and having this understanding of the world. And then you have kids and then you have older kids. And I was like, Oh, all of these people out here already having to deal with families 
in a structure that isn't that most, that is not very supportive. There's no aloe parents left. You know, it's this very rigid structure. The bulk of the work tends to fall on a single parent as far as meeting everyone's needs. So not only do the children not necessarily, they're not always able to get their needs met. The person doing the task isn't all, like, there's not any cult. No one's benefiting from the, the sedentary model. So this, you know, the kids climb a tree, they identify the fruit, they got their own snack. You didn't have to get the snack, but you did the style of education that you see throughout humanity for a longer period of time, which is through modeling and showing the younger generation how to navigate the environment for themselves. And problem solve something. And problem right? solve. Like that's right. The outside the birds got. Yeah. That's right. I mean, and, but look at but that's nature too. I mean, that's yeah. like to, to even recognize a pattern of, yeah. of exactly. where the other animals are foraging and where you fit in with the persimmon and the birds and the dry branches and your mother. You know what I mean? Like it's just, it's, be- it's a beautiful ecology. Yeah. Yeah, it sure is. Third movement is walking. And mm-hmm. I want to talk about walking, but before we talk about walking, we have to talk about standing. I did a nutritious movement workshop where we workshopped standing in Ventura <laughs> for hours. Yeah. I've never been so sore. We, we woke up the next morning and we were so sore because yeah. we were getting our alignment. Correct. That's right. But even in talking about standing, I need to rewind a little bit more because when people got on board with, we need to be moving more, we moved from our sitting desks to our standing desks. Uh, So that's not necessarily a solution, but can you talk a little bit about standing and then also walking and the importance of walking? Well, standing is an element of walking. Mm -hmm. Standing has also become in a a higher volume than what's natural because people are trying to replace sitting. Sitting's bad. All right. Then I'm going to stand. And it's like, well, sitting wasn't necessarily the issue. Not moving was the issue. So yes, standing isn't, is going to move you differently than sitting. So if you've been sitting a lot, taking sitting breaks by standing is helpful unless the alignment that you have when you're standing uses too little of your structure to support you. So that's what you were working on is this idea of, okay, when I'm standing, where are my hips? Oh, they're out in front of my feet. That's going to be a problem for my low back and for the pain in my feet, which is why a lot of people, when they tried to switch from maybe a sitting desk to a standing desk, the pain was so debilitating for their back that they couldn't do it. And they said, I tried to do that for my health and it was worse. So I'm just going to go back and sit. So we like to say there's a nuance to standing. There's a standing that uses a lot of muscle and that's what you learn first. There's a form. The nice thing is by working on that standing form, that standing form is an element to walking. So even before you start a walking program, which is probably the most prescribed exercise program across the board for all health practitioners, maybe outside of physical therapists who are doing something nuanced, you're like, just start walking, just take a walk. Mm-hmm. We give that prescription a lot, but maybe there's a, a deeper needing to understand how there's a form for walking that makes the walking more comfortable for a body and how there's a form for walking that will decrease adherence or or steer, steer back around all of the reasons why someone wasn't walking in the first place. It hurts my mm-hmm. feet. It hurts my knees. It hurts my back when I do it. So, yeah. so walking to me is, again, it's one of those very important, accessible, 
simple, abundant, easy movements to fit in in this model where you just take a two-minute walk break, and that's great for your arteries and your back and your feet, your mind, your emotions can all be cleared through a brief walk. Um, but but there's some nuance to it. There There is some nuance to walking, and if you can work on the nuance of walking, then it, it might be one of the most new nutritionally dense movements that's around, especially if you're doing it outside and on your way or facilitating some other thing while you're walking. So walking on a treadmill, you can get the walking done. But if you start walking in lieu of driving, if you start walking with a friend, if you start walking, I mean, even with a pet, if you start walking to get groceries or drop off mail or um, run some sort of errand, then, then the nutritional density is even higher because you're meeting a lot more of those needs. Yeah. Walk to the movie theater. Walk to the movie. Th- Go have a date hike. We do yeah. it all the time. Yeah. So as I'm standing here, some of the in- Katie Bowman influences in my office at our, <laughs> at our standing desk are as I have a half dome underneath me, which mm-hmm. I can do a little calf stretch. I have a rock underneath me so I can put my foot on a rock and get a varied texture. And then I have a couple of blocks. I think that's, that's part of it is structuring your environment at your retreat. There was a point in time where we were talking with an animal tracker about tracking animals. This is a very exciting retreat. (laughs) And, and we were standing around for quite a while and you could, you could get that sense. I mean, you're so intuitive. You get that sense that people are starting to do that. Like, when mm-hmm. are we going to sit down? We've been standing right. for too long. And your body's kind of starting to hurt a little bit. And you made the suggestion of, if you're starting to notice that, why don't you change your position a little bit? Get down into a squat. Spread out your legs. You know, that there's a lot of other positions that you could be in that could vary your experience. And then all of a sudden, your body doesn't hurt as much. And as we've been doing this interview, I've been standing, but I've also been kind of shuffling and moving and you've been rocking. And part of that is so that it just feels better to keep moving around. Yeah. And that's part of the, that's part of um, the culture and the way that the culture keeps influencing sedentarism is fidgeting means you're rude. It means that you've stopped listening. It means that it says something about you to need to squat versus continue to maintain a facade of a form, even though your mind is, I mean, you're not even paying attention anymore. You have to deal with all these other things that are coming up for you. And there are way more don't move signs than there are permission to move signs. And that's explicit. And then there are a ton of implicit signs about not moving at all. So I just, part of what I'm trying to do is constantly give permission, explicit and implicit permission to move in spaces where most people perceive movement is not okay. Yeah. Even ironically at a movement retreat in right. nature, everyone's still like, they don't even know what else no. to do with their no, body. We need to stand here and listen. That's and we, right. Even though our body's giving us signals right. of ouch. That's right. <laughs> I well, better I think, stand here. And think of children, yeah. like think of children yeah. in that phase and it's not okay to move or fidget when someone in charge is talking. Right. And so how do, how do we negotiate that piece? That's the project that I'm working on now. Yeah. Yeah. You talked to, you t- you've talked about how the backup mirror is our, was sort of to remove the last chance for us to do a natural twist in our That's life. Right, now that right. we're looking at the backup mirror or, you know, someone, I heard someone, I think it was on one of your blog, on your uh, podcast, which is great. 
they talked about moving their um, toilet paper roll to the back of the toilet. So they actually had to twist to grab it and <laughs> use it, which is like, great. That's fantastic. <laughs> that's great. Yeah. But, it, but it does mean, Kitty, it does mean going against the grain a little bit. Mm-hmm. And there's, there was, there's an essay that in one of your essays in Movement Matters, where you talk about this, this piece in the Huffington Post where someone was kind of critiquing the standing desk a little bit and saying that they had this experience of someone in the workplace with their standing desk and how it was in the way and they were kind of obnoxious and how that sometimes we need to go more with the harmony of the crowd than go against the grain. Sure. I'd love for you to speak about that because I feel like I'm doing that. I'm going against the grain a lot in my life around this and uh, it can feel challenging at times. Well, I think that's how cultures perpetuate is the discomfort of everyone involved when a cell goes rogue. <laughs> you know, it's, yeah. you know, there's a nonconformity. There's a pressure from conformity. And I think it's the feelings that you feel when you yourself are doing the different thing or when you are the thing that is the same. The feelings that you have when someone else is doing different. And I remember that piece and it was just like, oh, this person lording their body over the office. You know, it was all inside the head of the perspective of the person that had chose to sit, Mm -hmm. but it was really just wanting to make sure that that person doing it differently was doing the inappropriate behavior. So yeah, I mean, culture is relative. You know, your behavior within a culture is relative. My way of dealing with that, I've been lucky enough to start with movement as the thing that most people want more of. And so you know, to say like, I'm doing the standing desk because it's better for my body. It's a better choice is different than saying I was really struggling fitting more movement into my day. So I found that if I adjusted the shape of my desk, my body that, that I was able to meet my goal of being able to move more. So using I statements is always really helpful. Um, and to try to, to try to, to not, pitch it so much as a right or wrong decision as much as a, this is a move more option, move less option. Cause there are definitely people who need move less options for certain scenarios. So it's mostly just to say these, this choice, this setup, this arrangement gets you more of the things that you've been struggling to find Mm-hmm. And when someone can see that it's not just about being right or wrong, which health decisions are often put into more of a morality structure of like, this is the better choice. You know, this is the more evolved or the right choice versus this is the thing that you wanted and here's how to get it. And then when it's framed that way, then a person I think has some a- autonomy in going, Oh, right. I see now how I can choose that if I want more of the thing. So I've, I've just kind of framed it as you want more time with your family, but you wanted more movement and you couldn't figure out how to do both. Here's that. You want to still work eight hours a day, but you want it to be better on your body. Here's how to do that. Oh, you have this other group that might be affected. Here's how to explain it so that they know it's good for them too, or that it's better for everyone and not just for the movement that I'm just thinking therapy in my mind, that the therapy can be better when it has a dynamic element. It's going to meet more of everyone's needs. So ecology has been helpful in explaining that. So if you were to give recommendations for our listeners who are mental health professionals uh, or people that are interested in psychology, what would they, what would they be? 
Well, before you make any changes, I think it's really good to assess. So if anyone hadn't considered this idea of sedentarism, pervasive sedentarism, start looking around at the environment. Like you're certainly going to start noticing. People notice how much they sit. Before you even change them, how many minutes do you actually have? How many of minutes do you go on social media as a way of bringing yourself down or centering yourself or grounding yourself? What are, what are the things you're choosing to do now? And that lets you know the volume of time that you already have that's flexible that you just hadn't realized you were taking. So notice what you're taking first. And then the second thing would be, is there a more movement equivalent yeah. to what you're doing right now? If you're like, I really need to read in between. I need to listen to music in between sessions. Is there an element? Could you listen to music and take a 10 minute walk or a five minute walk? Um, evaluate your space. Is there any permission yeah. to move anywhere? Do your clients even have an opportunity to not sit or are they sitting because you're the person in charge and you're sitting and there's a right. power of this is how it's done. Like do you offer three seats where you're already showing that they can make a choice and that you have three seats and that you're modeling how you make a choice based on mm -hmm. how you're feeling. So now we've got six chairs in an office, but that's okay. So you're just, you know what I'm saying is yeah. like, you're starting to actually mm -hmm. point out, you're trying to bring to the conscious mind choices around moving or not moving that you're actually making all the time. Those would be the first things because once you tune into the principle, you're going to come up with all sorts it's of all over. Stuff. Yes. And that, that once we start thinking outside of the box, that maybe it would be beneficial to take our clients for a walk. Oh, given yeah. that it's beneficial it's antidepressants or therapy in itself. But the nice thing about that is what if at the end of the day of, of doing your work, your body doesn't feel trash. And that's what I have noticed about integrating some of these ideas into, into my life is that I don't have to feel terrible physically by doing the work that I love. And it's all these little tiny micro adjustments and creating environments where both of our bodies and my, my clients' bodies can feel better too. So I'm so grateful and appreciative that I don't know how I found you, but <laughs> changed my life. I don't know either, but changed I'm family. <laughs> I really, yeah, appreciate that. It's been an honor and delight to have you on the show, Katie Bowman, and take pick up her book. Start. I would suggest start with Move Your DNA just to get an overview, and then read the essays in, Move, in Movement Matters. There's some great essays on science in there and on research that are tremendously helpful. And then a great gift for your parents or uh, for yourself is a Dynamic Aging. That's also one that every one of my parents got, <laughs> in-laws and parents got a few years back when it first came out. So thank you so thank much. Thank you. Thank you. Take care. Thank you for listening to Psychologists Off the Clock. You can find us on iTunes, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Please help us out by writing a review on iTunes. We'd like to thank our interns, Dr. Catherine Foley-Saldania and Dr. Katie Lear. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only and is not meant to be a substitute for mental health treatment. If you're having a mental health emergency, dial 911. If you're looking for mental health treatment, please visit the resources on our webpage. We're at offtheclockpsych.com.